Uh, this evening in your Bibles, we would invite you to turn to 1 Peter 1. We'll begin reading at verse 22. We'll read into chapter 2 through verse 3 of chapter 2. Uh, in your pew Bible, this is on page 1391. After we read from the inspired Word of God, we'll also be reading from what we believe is a faithful summary of the Word of God, our Heidelberg Catechism. This evening we come to Lord's Day 25 in the Forms and Prayers book that is found on page 226. We read first from the inspired Word of God this evening from 1 Peter 1, beginning at verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed but incorruptible, through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Uh, thus far for now our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Lord's Day 25, which has a number of questions as it introduces uh, the concept of the sacraments. We begin with question 65. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where then does that faith come from? And the answer, the Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the holy sacraments. Question 66 asks, what are sacraments? And the answer, sacraments are visible holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Question 67, are both the Word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? And the answer, yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the gospel and confirms by the holy sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. Question 68, how many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? And the answer, two, holy baptism and the Holy Supper. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and especially uh, children, think with me for just a moment by way of introduction, that you notice somebody has something that's, that's valuable, maybe that, that's good. Maybe it's something good to eat, your favorite food. Maybe you're at uh, the Iowa State Fair later this summer, and you see a, a turkey lick, uh, leg on a stick, and you think, ah, oh, I have to have that. If you see someone else who has it, 
you might go up to that person and say, where did you get that? And you, you ask that question because you also want to obtain this. You want to, you want to get this. Now, maybe some of the boys and girls think, well, that's the last thing I would ever want, a turkey leg on a stick on a hot August afternoon. I tend to agree with you, so imagine it's something that you really, really wanted, something you really, really needed. Imagine it's a hot August afternoon, and you haven't had anything to drink for quite a while. You're so thirsty, your mouth is dry. And you see somebody with a nice, cold cup of lemonade. And you go to them and say, where did you get that? In some comparison, that's the question before us this evening. Think with me just for a moment of the recent Lord's Days as we have unfolded the nature of faith. That faith is that saving instrument. Faith is what saves, and faith alone is what saves. This faith that includes a a certain knowledge, a certain experiential knowledge, but also a heartfelt confidence or a hearty trust in Jesus Christ. A faith that includes a certain content, knowing the Father, knowing the Son, knowing the Holy Spirit, knowing their persons, but also their particular works. A faith that brings the benefit of justification, of being declared absolute and full conformity to the law of God. A faith that receives the benefit of the forgiveness of sins. If we understand something of the blessings that come upon the exercise of faith, then we will have this desire within our hearts to know, well, where does this faith come from? And also, isn't it true, parents and grandparents, when you think of your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, there's many hopes you have for them, many dreams maybe you have for them, many things you would like to give them or give them the opportunities for them to obtain. But if you had to boil it all down to one thing, One thing that you would desire your children to have, your grandchildren to have, your great-grandchildren to have, would it not be this? Faith? I mean, if you could give them mountains of material possessions or faith, which would you choose? If you could give them all of the academic success in this world or faith, well, what would your selection be? If you could give them unparalleled success in athletics or faith, wouldn't we all say faith every single time? Because it has the promise of a benefit in this life and in the life to come. So where does this faith, this saving faith, this sole instrument of our salvation, where does it come from? both initially, but also continually? Well, the answer is revealed in our text as it is summarized, especially in the opening question uh, of our catechism, but then woven all throughout Lord's Day 25. And we want to consider this theme tonight, redemption through the work of the Spirit. 
Uh, noticing that the work of the Spirit, first of all, produces a faith, and then secondly, embraces a promise, and then third, rest on Christ. So redemption or salvation comes through the work of the Holy Spirit, first of all, producing a faith, secondly, embracing a promise, and thirdly, resting on Christ. Faith. The evidence of things not seen, a certain knowledge, and a hearty trust is not something that we just work up within ourselves. It is rather something that is produced by a sovereign work in a personal heart. I cannot give myself faith. You cannot give yourself faith. I cannot give you faith, and you cannot give me faith. As parents, we cannot give our children faith. As grandparents, we cannot give our grandchildren faith. Oh, we can pray for that faith. We can teach them the faith. We can bring them underneath the means of grace. But at the end of the day, what we need to produce a faith is a sovereign work of God alone because of the nature of of mankind, because of our human nature, as is so summarized powerfully in Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is the starting point. We believe, as we profess in our baptism form, uh, that we, along with our children, are conceived and born dead in sins and in trespasses. So there must be a sovereign that is a God work upon our heart and within our heart. You see, the sovereignty of God is not just some abstract doctrine that, you know, when we're really theologically curious, we kind of pick up this topic and say, well, let's talk about the sovereignty of God. I mean, we're Calvinists, so let's really get into this whole concept. No, the sovereignty of God, this is our hope. This is our only hope. I mean, imagine the absolute folly of a person standing behind a pulpit thinking that he can somehow persuade people to do something when those persons, by their own nature, are dead in sins and in trespasses. We're speaking now apart from the regenerating grace of God. And yet God in His sovereign work, especially through the work of the Holy Spirit, is pleased within the hearts of the elect to produce this faith through the process of what we call regeneration. And now there's been some debate, and we won't go too far in the debate. If you want to talk in a different context, we could do that. There's been some debate in the history of the Reformed Church of whether regeneration is what we call immediate or mediate. Does God use means in this regeneration, or does He work directly upon the soul uh, when He grants new life? Uh, the best answer, I believe, is if we just simply follow the text, for example, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. Notice verse 23, having been born again, the spiritual, spiritual rebirth. But how does that happen? Not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the Word of God which lives and abides forever. 
So on the basis of this text and a basis of similar texts, we can be relatively certain that the Holy Spirit is generally primarily pleased to use the proclamation of the Word of God to produce regeneration. Now, He doesn't have to do it, but He's chosen to bind His work to the preaching of the Word of God. And not only in the initial creation of the exercise of faith, but also in the ongoing exercise of faith. And so you'll notice in verse 2, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word, that you may grow thereby. How does this spiritual growth, this maturing in the faith, how does this come about? By way of the pure milk of the Word. And we all know this in physical life and in human life, you need a certain intake of nutrients if you're going to grow if you're going to develop. The same principle is true spiritually. You and I are dependent upon a healthy, steady, spiritual diet of the Word of God for the generation of faith, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. You can think of two examples chosen somewhat arbitrarily uh, in the Acts of the Apostles. I uh, think of Lydia, the seller of purple. How did faith come into her heart? Well, you say the Holy Spirit gave her that faith, and right you are. But underneath the preaching of the Apostle Paul. You can think also of the Philippian jailer. How did faith come in his heart? The Holy Spirit worked directly upon the heart, but the Holy Spirit worked directly upon that jailer's heart through the words of the Apostle Paul. You can think of Romans 10, verse 17. I was just going to quote it, but I want, if you are so inclined, uh, you to see it and to look at it, because we're going to be making a point of application uh, based directly upon this. Romans 10, verse 17. We'll back up and begin at verse 15. How shall they preach unless they are sent? That is as written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now listen to this verse. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And this is what grieves the heart when you drive through a community and see the athletic complex more occupied than the church building on a Sunday afternoon. This is what grieves the heart of spiritual leadership when individuals have opportunity and time to do everything else, but the churches are closing their doors when it comes to Sunday services. Faith does not come by athletic pursuits. Now, that's not the same as saying athletic pursuits are evil in and of themselves, but faith does not come through such things. 
faith does not come through recreational activities. Faith does not come through idleness. Faith doesn't come by water sports on the lake on Sunday afternoon. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And and don't misunderstand these words. This is not some proud, arrogant, pharisaical, tug-on-our-suit lapel saying we are the only ones still holding on to the faithfulness of a former generation. This is the pastoral burden for us and for our children and for our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. How will faith come into their hearts? By the Word of God. By the preaching of the Word of God. By the lively preaching of the Word. There's also another application. Uh, Don't ever allow a man to stand behind this pulpit and just tell stories or give his insights or his opinions on this and on that. Make sure, insist upon it. Give us the Word of God, the pure, unadulterated milk of the Word. Preach Jesus Christ to us in all of His beauty, but in all of His simplicity, because it is through that that faith is generated initially with regeneration and continually through the ongoing exercise of faith within a personal heart. And notice that this is a personal matter as well. Uh, To borrow from one Reformed commentator, he says, faith is a strictly personal matter which the Holy Spirit gives to each person even though, and that he follows as a rule, the line of the generations, each of us must be personally convinced whether or not we possess that faith. Now, we can be thankful, and we should be thankful for the faith of our fathers, but the faith of our fathers, if it is nothing more than the faith of our fathers, will not benefit us anything. If the faith of your fathers does not become your faith, well, then that has no benefit to you. You can't slip into heaven on the coattails of your grandfather's suit. Faith must be a personal activity of the individual heart as the Holy Spirit works faith through the preaching of the Word. And that faith then, as we've described it, And as we consider in our second point, embraces a promise. If you want to know what faith does in its most basic activity, faith holds on to a promise, to a promise, the gospel promise, the promise that is proclaimed in the preaching of the word and the promise that is then set before us uh, appealing to our other senses uh, in the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And this also is a powerful reminder that the preaching of the gospel must always center upon this promise of the gospel. And it comes at it from different angles, depending upon the text and depending upon the genre of Scripture. But whether it be from Genesis, Leviticus, Psalms, a major prophet, a minor prophet, a historical account of the gospel, a Pauline epistle, 
an epistle written by John or James or Jude, whether it be the book of Revelation, the entire 66 canonical books, they all focus upon this gospel promise that faith holds on to. And this promise includes, first and foremost, the gracious forgiveness of sins. The gospel, the word itself simply means good news, the proclamation of good news. And what is the good news? The good news is not this. The good news is not that if you, you know, recycle more than you throw into the landfill, that maybe we can change the environment and maybe we'll achieve some type of utopian existence here in this present age. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not, well, if you do the right things and tithe the right amount, and on and on and on, you will enjoy unparalleled prosperity in your financial portfolio. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not if you just, you know, get internally uh, aligned right, you'll experience complete tranquility and peace in this life. The gospel is this. You and I have sinned against a holy God, but there is forgiveness of sin based upon the work of Jesus Christ and His substitutionary atoning sacrifice. That's the gospel. And maybe there's a correlation. I think there is. You can work these things out in your own mind. Because is it that the church, broadly speaking, compromised on the gospel, and then the members of the church said, there's really nothing here for us to hear. And they quit coming. So maybe the fault lies more at the compromise and the preaching. The people said, you know what, we can get this better from others. If we're coming to church just to get financial advice, well, we'll go to the millionaires to get that. Or if we're coming to church just to have some type of psychological experience, well, we'll go to the the certified counselors for that. But you see, when people understand that my most basic Concern is the forgiveness of sins. And when they see that the church is proclaiming the gospel message that there is forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, then maybe there will be a more strong magnetic pull that individuals will come and and they'll ask the church, yes, tell us about the gospel. Preach Christ to us. Because we've been down every other road and they're all empty. They've all left us lacking. We tried the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. We're still sick. We're still dying. We're still struggling to pay our bills at the end of the month. We tried to be more active in certain social causes, and this world is still broken. We tried to bring universal peace, and there's still wars and rumors of wars. So tell us about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. And then let the church be ready to do so saying such things as Isaiah 59, verse 2, your iniquities have separated from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. But then going on into Isaiah 43, verse 25, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. And I do think it's so helpful to clarify the gospel, to fast forward for a mere moment in your mind to the end of your earthly life. So imagine that you are not in a morbid way, but in a realistic way. Imagine that you are on your deathbed. And the gospel minister comes to visit you. 
Do you want to hear about saving the environment? Do you want to hear about how to diversify your portfolio? Do you want to hear about self-fulfillment? Do you want to hear about this or that, or do you want to hear about the grace and the mercy of our God and the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life? I dare say it's the latter. And this is the constant drumbeat of the faithful church. The gospel promise, the gospel promise, the gospel promise. From the pulpit, from the baptism font, and from the table of our Lord in the administration of communion. Because redemption comes, as we consider in our third point, through resting on Christ. Placing all of one's hope, finding all of one's confidence, not in who we are, May I ask you do, you, do you put spiritual confidence in who you are? Or who we are? Or who we think we are? On that great day of days, in the final judgment, are we going to appeal to who we thought we were? I sure hope not. I hope that we entirely, 100% are focused in resting upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ, especially his atoning sacrifice. And Lord willing, next Sunday morning, all of the sanctified drama of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, it will point away from ourselves. And it will point to that atoning sacrifice where once and for all blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, for a covering. And on the basis of that shedding of blood, God then is pleased to forgive sins. You can think of Leviticus 17, verse 11, speaking here about the sacrificial lamb on the day of, the day of atonement, which of course was a, a type, it foreshadowed the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord gives instructions there to the priest uh, about these sacrifices, and he says, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. The blood on the altar, atonement for your souls. Think of that when you see the bread being broken. And as you handle it, and as your senses are bombarded from every direction, testifying to the gospel promise that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given as an atonement for your soul. And as you see the wine, as you smell the wine, as you taste the wine, think again. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed 
for an atonement for your soul. This is the focus of faith. Exclusively compelled to center itself upon Jesus Christ and his exclusive sacrifice. Two more texts as we draw to a close to try to bolster this presentation. 1 John 2, verse 2, He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He himself. You can think also of 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so you see perhaps something of the importance of faith as a sovereign work of God by especially the person of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Word to proclaim to us the person and the work of Jesus Christ upon whom we place all of our trust and all of our hope and all of our confidence for the forgiveness of sins and for the experience of eternal life. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, what a wonder the gospel is. Now we simply ask that you would remind us of that wonder tonight in our time together. Uh, Father, we also have requests to make. We pray that we may never lose sight of the beauty, the sufficiency, the majesty, the glory of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We pray that this church may never substitute anything for the primacy of pure preaching of the word of Christ and of him crucified. We pray that we, our children, our grandchildren, down throughout the subsequent covenantal generations, would always have a healthy spiritual appetite, desiring the pure milk of the word, that we might grow thereby in our personal exercise of faith. We ask that you would always be pleased to exalt yourself and to exalt your Son, not only in the preaching, but also in the sacraments. May there be numerous occasions for the waters of baptism, and may there also be the consistent opportunities for the breaking of bread and the distribution of the wine. And in all of these exercises, May our faith increase to the glory of your great name. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.